want to welcome you uh, to the second week of uh, this series called uh, Room for Doubt. And uh, my four-year-old son has uh, kind of been in uh, two phases the last little bit. Uh, one phase is what I call the what does it mean phase. And uh, we can be driving around and I'll be talking to my wife Cheryl and I say, man, I was reading a book last night or that show we watched last night, that really freaked me out. And a little voice in the back, what does freaked out mean? Right? Or I'll say, man, honey, that dinner last night, that was just awesome. Little voice in the back. What does awesome mean? And then the other phase he's in right now is the why phase. Right? Yeah, you, you know. So, so the other night we're trying to, you know, um, wrangle uh, Sam to, in, into bed. And uh, Jim Gaffigan said it best when he said it really is like a hostage negotiation. You know, it, it's like they've never been to bed before every night of the week. So... Um, we're trying to, to kind of get him into bed, and um, Cheryl's tucking him in and everything, and she says, good night, Sam. He says, why did you say good night? Because it's time for sleeping. Why is it time for sleeping? Because it's dark. Why is it dark? Because it gets dark when it's time for sleeping. Why? Good, good night, Sam. And the last thing we hear is the door shutting is, Why? Why? Okay, yeah. Uh, the world today is not unlike my son. Uh, when it comes to God and when it comes to a belief in his, in his existence, uh, they, we, we all really want to know why. Um, not, not just that you believe in God. We, the world today wants to know why you believe in God. And it's being uh, asked a lot more than it used to be asked. For, for many, many years, I would describe uh, our, our nation as, by and large, a Christian culture. And what I mean by that is that most people, although not all, but most people for a long time in our country kind of just accepted the premise that God existed, that God was the creator of the universe. They accepted, accepted that as, as true. And listen, I, I posted a blog recently on our church website about there are some challenges that come with a culture like that, where, where everyone just kind of accepts, um, accepts something as, as true. There are some challenges that... that that come with that. So I'm not celebrating it, but it was a reality. What, what I would describe us as now is I would describe us as a post-Christian culture. And what I mean by that is that God is no longer just simply accepted as, as a reality or, or as true. We live in an increasingly skeptical age. Uh, we, we just do. We're, we're skeptics kind of across across the board. We, our culture asks the word or asks the question why a lot. Carl Sagan is famously quoted as saying one time, the cosmos is all that there ever is and all there ever will be. Richard Dawkins recently wrote, the factual premise of religion, the God hypothesis is untenable. God almost certainly does not exist. So you have this emergence of this new atheism is what it's being called in our culture. A, a new atheism of pe people like Richard Dawkins that I just quoted, uh, one of the most aggressive atheists of our day. Uh, Sam Harris wrote a book called The End of Faith. The late Christopher Hitchens wrote a book called God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. And because of all of the reasons that I just laid out, there is an increased pressure for Christians to be able to give an account as to why. Why you, why you believe in God, that it's not just because your faith was handed down to you uh, from your, your mom and dad. It's not wishful thinking. It's not a blind leap of faith. It's that we know, as we talked about last week, we know what we believe, and we also know why we believe it. First Peter 3.15 uh, says, give an answer to everyone who asks us to give a reason for the hope 
that we have is this, every Christian should be prepared to answer those two questions, what you believe and why you believe it. Every Christian should be prepared to give an answer. And that's kind of uh, what this series is all uh, about. So we want to have, we want to know the answer to, to why. And listen, most people that you encounter with at work or at the grocery store are, are not of that new atheist uh, group that, that culture kind of describes. They're, um, most people that you're going to interact with are, are doubters, are skeptics, and they, they just want to know why you believe what you believe. That's how most people are. They just want to know why you believe what, what you believe. And there's an old kind of adage where the Christian response to questions like why would be, um, you know, the Bible, uh, the Bible said it, and that's, that's good enough for me. The Bible said it, I believe it, that's, that's good enough. And, and honestly, for me, uh, somebody that, that believes in the sanctity of God's word, <laughs> let's go and get the fan off, thanks. Um, somebody that believes in the sanctity of God's word, um, that, that is enough for me. The, the fact that the Bible says it, it, it is good enough for me. But for, the people that, for many of the people that we interact with, doubters, skeptics, people like that, that haven't yet accepted God's word, uh, that reason that the Bible just said it, that, that's good enough for me, that, that settles it, that answer can be frustrating um, and, and, and confusing. And so we want to be able to give an answer. So that's what today's sermon is about reasons to believe in God. So when you come across people that they're not um, sure why, why you believe in God and, and you want to explain, these are reasons, and, and these are reasons that are kind of based in experience and philosophy and, and science. So we're going to get into some uh, detail about that. And uh, what we're going to find is that the Bible supports all the stuff that we're talking about today. So reasons to believe in God. Let me throw the first one on the screen. Uh, reason number one, the beginning of the universe points to God as its originator. Right? The beginning of the universe points to God as its originator. The first reason to believe in God comes from a science of cosmology. It's the study of the origin, structure, and development of the physical universe. You'll sometimes read about this as the cosmo cosmological argument. Um, that, that when you look at the cosmos, it kind of lends itself to a belief in God. If you've ever looked up at the stars, if you've ever uh, just viewed the cosmos, there is often this feeling that comes up in you of, man, there, there, must, there must be a God. There, there must be a God that created this. And in order to kind of lay out this argument, I want to show you a video right now. Um, it's from a guy, Dr. William Craig. Uh, he has a, uh, a, a ministry called Reasonable Faith, and he outlines this uh, cosmology argument, I think, very well. So let's go ahead and take a look at this video. Does God exist? Or is the material universe all that is, or ever was, or ever will be? One approach to answering this question is the cosmological argument. It goes like this. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe has a cause. Is the first premise true? Let's consider. Believing that something can pop into existence without a cause is more of a stretch than believing in magic. At least with magic you've got a hat and a magician. And if something can come into being from nothing, then why don't we see this happening all the time? No, everyday experience and scientific evidence confirm our first premise. 
If something begins to exist, it must have a cause. But what about our second premise? Did the universe begin? Or has it always existed? Atheists have typically said that the universe has been here forever. The universe is just there, and that's all. First, let's consider the second law of thermodynamics. It tells us the universe is slowly running out of usable energy. And that's the point. If the universe had been here forever, it would have run out of usable energy by now. The second law points us to a universe that has a definite beginning. This is further confirmed by a series of remarkable scientific discoveries. In 1915, Albert Einstein presented his general theory of relativity. This allowed us, for the first time, to talk meaningfully about the past history of the universe. Next, Alexander Friedman and George Lemaitre, each working with Einstein's equations, predicted that the universe is expanding. Then in 1929, Edwin Hubble measured the red shift in light from distant galaxies. This empirical evidence confirmed not only that the universe is expanding, but that it sprang into being from a single point in the finite past. It was a monumental discovery, almost beyond comprehension. However, not everyone is fond of a finite universe, so it wasn't long before alternative models popped into existence. But one by one, these models failed to stand the test of time. More recently, three leading cosmologists, Arvin Bord, Alan Guth and Alexander Vilenkin, prove that any universe which has on average been expanding throughout its history cannot be eternal in the past, but must have an absolute beginning. This even applies to the multiverse, if there is such a thing. This means that scientists can no longer hide behind a past eternal universe. There is no escape. They have to face the problem of a cosmic beginning. Any adequate model must have a beginning, just like the standard model. It's quite plausible then that both premises of the argument are true. This means that the conclusion is also true. The universe has a cause. And since the universe can't cause itself, its cause must be beyond the space-time universe. It must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, uncaused and unimaginably powerful. Much like God. The cosmological argument shows that, in fact, it is quite reasonable to believe that God does exist. Let's kind of walk uh, through that real, real quick. Uh, um, the first point they made is that whatever, uh, whatever begins to exist has a cause. And like they mentioned in the video, we know this intuitively. Uh, a couple Fridays ago, I was home with Sam, and I was loading the dishwasher, and Sam was in the next room uh, doing, doing some coloring. And all of a sudden, in the next room, it got very, very quiet, um, which with a four-year-old is bad news. And so I wandered in there and discovered that he had written with the marker all over his face and all over his legs. And I said, what's happened here? And Sam's response was, I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, we know this isn't true, right? From the arguments just laid out, we know that something caused the marker to be on his legs and, and on his face. The question is what or who caused that? And since I don't believe the markers got up and walked out of the box and 
drew on my son's legs. And since I don't believe a stranger came to our home uh, to, to do that, by brilliant deducing, I came up with a theory that Sam had colored on his own legs, right? One of my favorite stories about this biblically of this cause and effect thing is Moses, that Moses is walking through the desert and one day he happens upon a bush that is on fire, but it's not being consumed by the fire. And Moses looks at it, and you think about this, how long this kind of took for him to discover, to look at a bush and realize it's on fire, but it's not burning up. But Moses does exactly that. He looks at it for a good amount of time, I would imagine, and, and then he says uh, this, I will go over and see this strange sight, why this bush does not burn up. He assumes uh, that there's a reason the bush is on fire. He assumes that something or someone caused the bush to be on fire. He wants to know why. And this really is the heart of a scientist. Here's how Einstein said it. The scientist is possessed by a, uni- by a sense of universal causation. They want to know what, what caused it. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. So what caused it? Now here's the interesting question. Well, if everything uh, needs a cause, then who or what caused God? Now I was posed this very question one time at elementary school camp. Right? There was a little kid there named Timmy, and uh, all of a sudden he raises his hand in the back, and I said, yeah, Timmy, what do you need? He said, Mr. Higgs. I said, yeah, Timmy, what, what do you need? He said, who made God? And he was wrestling with this in, in, in his brain, that everything needs, needs a cause. Everything needs a beginning. And I was excited. I had one year of theological training under my belt. And so I explained to him that he had a misunderstanding of the science, that the science is not everything needs a cause. The argument is that everything that has a beginning has a cause. And so I explained to him that, no, Timmy, God is eternal, and God has no beginning, and God, consequently, he doesn't need a cause. He's always been, little hand goes up, yes, Timmy. Mr. Higgs, who made God? Right? It it is very difficult to get our our minds around this, but everything that has a beginning must have a cause. Number two, everything that uh, uh, the the, the universe began to exist, right? Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe began to exist. And as the video said, when you you do the study on this, almost everyone believes this to be true now. Uh, Stephen Hawking, the physicist, and and featured character in uh, the movie, The Theory of Everything, well-known atheist, he said this, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And again, almost everybody buys into this idea now. Now, there's differences on on what began the universe and and how it started, but almost everyone believes, not not everyone, but almost everyone believes, that the universe is not eternal, like like God was. And Christians, when I put that quote up there, some of you Uh, may have been kind of offended by the terminology Big Bang Theory, and I I completely understand that. But here's what I want to propose to you. Um, Are you offended by the idea there was a Big Bang, or are you offended by the idea or the lack of an intelligent designer in some of the Big Bang Theories? that it happened in chaos? Because I've I've never been sure about how much value value there is in arguing that there was never a Big Bang. Um, I would rather spend my time arguing about whether or not there was an intelligent designer because when I read Genesis 1 and 2 about how God spoke the existence, uh, spoke the universe into existence, guess what? There probably was a Big Bang when he did that, right? I'm guessing there was a Big Bang when God created the heavens and the earth. And that's exactly how one of my professors articulated to me is they said, whenever somebody says, wants to argue about the Big Bang, he, he said he would always say, yeah, the Big Bang, that's exactly how God chose to do it with the Big Bang. 
And when you read Genesis 1 and 2, it really seems feasible. And the bigger point is that someone caused the universe, someone or something caused the universe to come into existence. Someone caused the Big Bang, and that's how the rest of the theory goes. Everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe has a beginning. So number three, the universe has a cause. And from the Christian perspective, that cause is an intelligent, thoughtful, loving creator. The universe has a beginning. Everything else is a leap of faith uh, um, about what, what, what your mind and, and what your heart and what your faith is telling you is true. From the Christian perspective, um, my faith system, I'll, I'll just kind of be honest with you, I, I think it takes a little bit less faith to believe in an intelligent designer like God than it does that some Big Bang happened at random and started the universe. I, 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 I just think it takes less faith to, to believe in God. I mean, the, the others are, are more improbable leaps to me is what I'm trying to say. Uh, more improbable leaps uh, in, in, in terms of a belief system. So everything that has a beginning has a cause. The universe began, so the universe has a cause. And a thoughtful, intelligent, loving creator. Here's reason number two to believe in God. And this one, I find this one really, really interesting. First one too, but this one's kind of cool. The fine-tuning of the universe points us to God as its intelligent fine-tuner. All right, this is the science of fine-tuning. Here's what it says. It says the universe is huge, all right? In the observable universe, there are about 100 billion galaxies. All right, our universe has about 100 billion stars in our galaxy alone, and in our galaxy alone, there are about 100 million black holes. Here's the point. The universe is big, right? Universe is big. Now, that being said, Here's the fine-tuning argument. Earth is uniquely and specifically positioned to be able to support life. Earth is uniquely and specifically positioned to, to support life. So for instance, Earth sits at a 23.5 degree angle. Now you may wonder, why does the Earth tilt? Well, 60% of the gravitational pull comes from the moon, 40% comes from the sun, right? The Earth has bad posture, right? It's at about a 23.5 degree angle. 24 degree angle, no life on earth, right? 22 degree angle, there is no life on earth. Hydrogen must convert at one seven thousandth of its mass to helium in order to support life on planet earth. 0 0.007, 0.006, no life. 0 0.008, no life. All right, physicists have discovered that there are four forces in nature. One of those forces is the force of gravity, and they have calculated that if that force of gravity were off by one part in 10,000 billion, billion, billion relative to the strength of the other forces of nature, conscious life would cease to exist. This is the theory of fine-tuning, that we are uniquely placed and we are uniquely positioned in the universe to support life, and it doesn't feel random to me. The precision with which God has placed us, it, it appears to me that it points to God. I heard it described as a, a series of dials, that every dial has to be positioned exactly in order to support life. You say, well, how many dials are we talking about? Depending on the science that, that you wanna believe in, the minimum number of dials that I've heard that have to be set perfectly for life to exist on Earth is 50. The maximum that I've read to support life on Earth is 400. So anywhere from 50 to 400 on, on whatever you count as a dial, those dials have to be set one after another perfectly in order to support life. It doesn't feel like an accident to me. 
when Lee Strobel was uh, developing his book, The Case for Creator, he sat down uh, with an expert in, in this field of fine-tuning, and he was talking to the guy. The quote I'm about to share with you is, he asked the guy, what are the chances that just one dial could be set exactly right to support life on earth randomly or by accident, like if you were going to win the lottery? So what, what are the chances of just one of those dials being set perfectly? And here's what the scientist said. He said, let's say that you were way out in space, and you were going to throw a dart at random toward earth. It would be like successfully hitting a bullseye that is one trillion of a trillionth of an inch in diameter. That's less than the size of one solitary atom. And that's one dial. That's one dial being set at random. The, the chances of that happening, you, you should go out and play the lottery today if, if you want to take those chances, right? Now think about 50 dials. Think about 100 dials. Think about 400 dials. All of them set exactly right in order to support life on planet Earth. This evidence was so compelling to Andrew Flew, one of the most prominent atheists of the 20th century, that he rejected his atheism at age 81. And he shocked the world by, by writing this. He said, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. Dr. Paul Davies, one of the leading physicists of cosmology, put it this way, I cannot believe that our existence in the universe is a mere quirk of fate. We are truly meant to be here. Right? The science says it's too exact. Earth is positioned, and, and there's, so, so much, uh, there's so much at work to support life here on, on planet Earth that it's just too exact, it's too precise. It points to a, a, a designer. It points to an intelligent designer like God. And here's how God himself said it to Isaiah in chapter 40, verses 25 through 26 and 28. He said, to whom will you compare me? Who is my equal? Asked the Holy One. Look up to the heavens. Who created the stars? He brings them out like an army, one after another, calling each of them by name. Isn't that amazing? God calls each star by its name. Because of his great power and incomparable strength, not a single one is missing. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depth of his understanding. It says God set the heavens into existence. He has placed every aspect of it exactly where he wants it to be. Reason number three, our sense of morality points us to God as a moral law giver, right? Our sense of morality points us to the idea of a God who is a moral law giver. Almost everybody, and I understand we could bring up some arguments about psychopaths and um, people that are mentally ill and stuff like that, but if we can just kind of push that off to the side as anomalies right now, almost everybody has a core sense of a shared morality. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes it in Mere Christianity. He says, whenever you find a man who says he does not believe in a sense of right and wrong, you might find that man going back on it a moment later. He may break his promise to you, but if you try breaking one to him, he'll complain it's not fair. Has he not let, just let the cat out of the bag? That whatever he says, he really knows the law of nature like anyone else. So saying, you know, you, 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 get, you say a lot, someone says a lie to you, they may be able to justify that. You say one to them, and they're like, no, that's not fair, that's not right. They are revealing a sense of morality. Um, now, people can be wrong about morality. 
Uh, People can be deceived about morality. People can violate morality. We do it all the time. But that is not to say that there is not a sense of morality, a sense of shared morality inside each and every person. Here's the question. Where does it come from? Some people say it comes from the culture you were raised in. And listen, to a certain extent, that's true. To a certain extent, your morality does come from the culture that you were raised in. But morality does transcend culture. This is why when it's discovered that somebody like Saddam Hussein uh, killed his own family members and tortured and killed people who were political threats and ordered the gassing of thousands of Kurds. This is why across cultural lines, there's outrage to that. Even in Iraq, there was outrage to that. Right? It didn't matter what culture you were raised in. You're like, that's wrong. Right? That, that, that seems wrong. That, that is wrong. There's a, a sense of shared morality. Some would say that sense of morality, shared uh, morality comes from ourselves internally. That every person, all right, this is a very popular thought today, every person develops their own sense of morality. And here's the problem with that. Is we talk a lot about living up to God's sense of morality, and, and it's important that we do that. But here's the thing about you and I. You don't live up to your own sense of morality. Right? You, you have things you believe in, and you have values that you have that you don't live up to. You, you believe lying is wrong. Probably at one point in your life, you've lied. And I could beat that dead horse and we'd all feel miserable about ourselves, so I'm not going to do that, right? We don't live up to our own beliefs. So here's the question. If you invented your own sense of morality, why would you invent a moral code that you can't and don't fulfill? Why would you do that? You, you wouldn't do that. So the question remains, Where does our sense of right and where does our sense of wrong come from? You know, if you were to visit our house uh, and if you were to spend an afternoon with us, you would very quickly uh, get a sense of the rules in our home. And uh, you would very uh, quickly get a sense of what we care about as a result of observing the laws in our home. And God is the same way. When you read the Old Testament, when you read the New Testament, when you read his commands, you get a sense of what he really cares about. For instance, it's obviously very important to God that he cares about how we treat one another, right? It's a very important to God. A, a sense of purity and morality amongst his people is a very important thing to God. And here's the question. Couldn't it be as we're talking that a moral lawgiver actually knit some moral standards and put them inside human beings as a definition of what it means to be human. That our sense of shared morality across the globe, that our sense of shared morality actually points to a moral law giver who who put that inside each and every human being. Romans 2.15 says it this way. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at times defending them. Lee Storable in The Case for Faith says this, without God, morality is simply a product of social biological evolution and basically a question of taste or personal preference. Without God, there's no absolute right or wrong that imposes itself on our conscience. We know deep down that objective moral values do exist. Some actions like rape and child torture, for example, are universal moral abominations and therefore means that God exists. That there is a sense of morality a sense of right and wrong that God has placed inside every human being. And and the fact that there is a shared morality at all across our culture. I know people can violate morality. I I know people can uh, object and and live away from God's morality. I I get all of that. But I think we would all agree, 
we probably would anyway, that there is a sense of, of common morality. And that, that points to, to the idea that God exists. Reason number four, last one. Uh, our personal experience, personal experience points to a God who is worthy of worship. Um, if you are a Christian and you want to share a reason for why you believe, I want to say something to you. Your personal experience matters. Because you, you, would probably, you would probably say to me, well, yeah, I mean, I, I get that, you know, the unique positioning of earth and, and shared morality and all this kind of science stuff. I, I get all that. But probably at some point, you personally experience God, right? And, and that maybe even helped you cross the line of faith. Who, who knows? That's, that's what, it, what it took for, for Paul was uh, a, a, a personal experience with Jesus, Right? Jesus appeared to him on the road of Damascus and said, stop persecuting me. Paul said, I believe, <laughs> right? Um, you know, it, 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 was a, it was a personal experience. And so all the science and all that stuff, I, I think it's important, and I find it interesting. I don't know if you do, but um, I find it interesting. But at the end of the day, what probably moved you toward faith was a personal experience. Uh, and, it, and it's important that as you're sharing with the people in your life that maybe are skeptics or doubters or or whatever, it's important that you share that with them. Uh, my story is that uh, I grew up in a Christian home. My mom passed away when I was fairly young, 17. Uh, she had a brain aneurysm and passed away very, very quickly. And if there is a thing that will bring doubts into your mind about God, it's that. And what I found as I held on to God and what I found as I walked with God is that as he revealed himself more and more, he became more real through that experience. And I'll tell you, I, I, don't, I don't have those kinds of doubts about God as a result of a personal experience. So if you're here today and you have doubts about whether or not God exists, here's what I would ask you. Would you keep an open mind about the personal experiences of some of the people around you? I know sometimes there's a temptation to poo-poo that or throw that out of the way or whatever, but would you just keep in mind and listen to somebody's story? about what they've personally experienced um, and, and what, they, what they've seen. And if you're here and you know a skeptic or you know a doubter, um, man, share your story. It is, a, it, it is as important as the science, I believe, it is what you've personally experienced when it comes to God. You know what the old hymn says? The old hymn says, you ask me how I know he lives. You ask me how I'm certain, how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, right? The writer of that hymn was talking about having a personal experience. And this is often the first domino that falls in a skeptic or a doubter's life is, is belief in God. But once that domino falls, everything else falls into place because you are a worshiper. You were created to worship. I believe the only one big enough for you to worship is, is God. I believe your life is best lived God's way. I believe we exist for his name and his glory. But here's the first domino. It all starts by believing in him. And at some point, it requires faith. You know, I don't know that Jesus is going to do for you what he did for Paul. It'd be cool if he did. If you're walking out, go, man, I've got all these doubts. I've got all these skeptics. You know, George. That's me, Jesus. I believe, right? It would be great. That's probably not going to happen since this only happened a few times in Scripture. You know, Moses, Moses, burning bush, and those sorts of personal experiences. At some point, faith is, is required in this journey. But I want you to know, it's not unfounded faith. It's not just, uh, it's not just uh, silly faith. It's, there are good, solid reasons to have faith. Good, solid reasons to have faith that, that I just wanted to share with you this morning. And I want to pray for you. And I want to pray that our faith would be increased. Heavenly Father,
I thank you for today. Uh, I thank you that there are um, really good reasons for us to believe uh, that as the Bible talks about, uh, your universe declares your glory. And um, so, so we, can, we can look at that. And Lord, I really do, um, I really do believe you make the most sense. Um, when, when I look at people that have maybe made their decision and um, are really appear to be pretty angry about it and uh, resisting you, in a lot of ways, the thing they've put their faith in in a lot of ways, I, I feel like they have more faith in that thing in some ways because I just feel like you, you've made your presence obvious in this world. Um, help us to believe. Help us to have faith. Um, Lord, there are a lot of people in this room want to believe. But there's this doubt, there's this skepticism, there's this resistance. I want to pray what was prayed in the New Testament. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Want to sing a song of invitation if you'll stand? Um, We'd love to pray with you. Um, We'd love to talk with you. Uh, If you have any questions, um, we'd love to begin that conversation with you. Questions about Jesus, questions about God. If you're a Christian here and uh, you want to pray about some doubts that you're having or, or you have another prayer request or prayer need, you come forward. we got some prayer counselors up here who would love to pray with you as we sing this song. You spread out the skies Over empty space Said let there be light To 